squire nagged and bullied till I went to fight. I died in hell. They called it Passchendaele. Siegfried Sassoon. The British Expeditionary Force, with the support of the 2nd Corps, attacked at 3.50 a.m. July 31st and made modest gains over a 15-mile front. Then it started to rain. A gentle rainfall at first, it quickly turned into a torrential downpour, turning Flanders into an immense pool of evil-smelling muck. Unable to drain, the water collected in millions of shell holes and in the shallow valleys that separated the many long low ridges and hills in the battle zone. Official history, British Army. The intermittent heavy rain continued through August. A dry September saw British forces advance, but in October the rains returned harder than before, turning the battlefield into a swamp. Haig's army bogged down in full view of the enemy occupying the high ground of Passchendaele Ridge and was now more vulnerable than when the offensive began. 225,000 men had been killed or wounded, and with none of their objectives realized, Field Marshal Sir Douglas Haig's command of all British forces in France was in jeopardy. To save the situation, as well as his job, Haig turned to Arthur Curry and the Canadian Corps to take Passchendaele. On receiving that news, Will Byrd decided to divert his platoon with a history lesson on war in that part of France. Attila and his heathen Huns had poured into France, burning and plundering, and had lost 160,000 men before being driven away, I told them. King Edward at Crecy, facing three times his strength, had killed 30,000 Frenchmen, 1,200 knights and eight princes. So why should we consider we were engaged in an original catastrophe, I asked them. How many knights and princes are going to be killed at Passchendaele, Tony asked. Then he raved about the officers, the general staff in their fine chateau and villas, waited on hand and foot like lords stroking away with careless pens thousands of lives. Will Bird. The Canadians were at Vimy where their successful assault in 1917 had forced the Germans to shorten their defense with the construction of the Hindenburg Line, or if you were German, the Siegfried Line. Every Canadian hated to go to Passchendaele Ridge. I carried my protest to the extreme limit, which I believe would have resulted in my being sent home had I been other than the Canadian Corps commander. I pointed out that our casualties would reach 16,000 men was told to go and make the attack. Arthur Curry. As Curry looked out at the enemy fortifications at Passchendaele, he might have reflected that the success of previous Canadian attacks at Vimy, Lens, and Hill 70 were responsible for the battlefield's most striking feature, 
Five-foot-thick concrete bubbles now protected the enemy's forward machine guns from anything but a direct hit from the artillery. The British troops had thought the concrete bubbles resembled pillboxes, and that was the name they gave them. The pillboxes were a response to the tactic Curry and the Canadians had perfected at Vimy, of attacking machine gun posts rather than the enemy's trenches, as at the Somme. Now the machine guns, which could rake the battlefield from every direction, were protected as never before. The pillboxes were like icebergs, with nine-tenths of it below ground and the other tenth, the deadly tenth, sticking above with slots for machine guns to fire out of. Impossible things. Because of the mud, there were no trenches, just shell holes. Men were wet day after day. The quartermaster weighed one of our greatcoats. It weighed 50 pounds. The ratio of load to weight we carried into battle was higher than that of a mule. Gregory Clark, 4th Canadian Machine Gun Regiment. The land had no features, no woods, no buildings, just tormented soil. Sergeant Stuart Scott, 78th Battalion. The line the Canadians took over from the Australians and New Zealanders was less than a mile from the spot where in April 1915, they'd been subjected to the world's first gas attack. To those still serving in the Corps, now lamentably few, who had been present at the first battle long ago when the enemy had loosed its clouds of poison gas, the occasion was a momentous one. Harwood Steel. Curry, as was his habit, addressed his men before they went into action. The Commander-in-Chief, General Haig, has called on us to do a big job. I promise you that you will not be called upon to advance as you never will be, until everything has been done to clear the way for you. After that, it's up to you, and I leave it to you with confidence. Arthur Curry. It was a terrible speech. He told us the Australians had tried to take it, and the British tried to take it, and now they called in the Canadians. And he said, you have to take it before you get out of here. Private George Moyer. Before the battle even began, 1,500 men in the Canadian work battalions were killed or wounded by German shelling. Curry and Haig divided the coming battle into four bites, each to be followed by a pause of three days with troops being relieved halfway through each assault. The first attack, or bite, on October 26th resulted in the loss of 2,481 men, but most of its objectives were realized. I remember walking along and the wounded men hanging onto the edge of these duct boards with their bodies about half submerged in the mud. And some of the fellows, not knowing they were there, would step on their fingers, you know? And their screams. Oh God, it just haunts you, you know? But we had strict orders. You couldn't help them. You couldn't do anything. Just had to keep going. Private L. R. Fennell. The second assault, October 30th, gained another 1,000 yards with the loss of 1,321. 
You would pass somewhere and the water would move a little and you would see men's heads bobbing up and down, drowned in sloughs. Whether they were wounded or killed first, we didn't know. They'd been there some time. Private Bar Ferry, 21st Battalion. At this point, the 3rd and 4th Divisions were relieved by the 1st and 2nd. And on November 6th, under drier conditions, Canadian troops fought their way through the craters and swamps and reached the town of Passchendaele. Having overwhelmed the pillboxes one at a time, with losses amounting to another 2,238. Two days before the final assault, General von Hindenburg, the German Supreme Commander, issued an order. Passendale is to be held at all costs. There is to be no retreat. General Paul von Hindenburg. The troops opposite the Canadians were Prussians, and one of them, taken prisoner, told the correspondent of the Glasgow Herald, Wir können die Kanadier nicht ausstehen. Wir Deutsche betrachten sie als verzweifelte Männer. We do not like the Canadians. We Germans think they are desperate men. On November 12th, the Canadians succeeded in taking their final objective, Passchendaele Ridge. Two days later, after determined German counterattacks had failed, the capture of the ridge was judged secure, and the Canadians were replaced. Curry's prediction of 16,000 casualties proved right almost to a man. Final casualties totaled 15,654, with the bodies of 1,000 lost forever under the mud of Passchendaele. They asked me what it had been like at Passchendaele, and I said, not too bad, and changed the subject. That which I noticed in others had come to me. No soldier who had been in that fighting could talk about it at all. Will Bird. The Canadian Corps and its commander, Arthur Curry, who had planned every phase of the final battle, had saved Haig's command. Because the Canadians had taken Passchendaele, the Third Battle of Ypres, with its 260,000 British and Dominion casualties, could be presented to the War Cabinet and the public as at least a partial success. Curry henceforth would be treated more like an army commander than the corps commander he was. He was given a place at British headquarters and a degree of control accorded to no one else of his rank on the Western Front. The Canadians retired to Vimy. The British troops left to defend Passchendaele were swept aside as the Germans in their 1918 spring offensive obliterated all the gains Haig had achieved in 1917, allowing Winston Churchill to add this final postscript to Passchendaele. forlorn expenditure of valor and life without equal in futility. Winston Churchill. When a man reports that his nerves are gone, I never allow him to leave the line until the tour is finished on account of the effect on the other men. Dr. G.S. Strathy, Major, Medical Corps.
As early as November 1914, Lord Knutsford wrote in the Times of London of a mysterious ailment affecting the frontline soldier. There are a number of our gallant soldiers for whom no proper provision is at present obtainable, but is sorely needed. They are men suffering from very severe mental and nervous shock due to exposure, excessive strain, and tension. If not cured, they will drift back to the world as miserable wrecks for the rest of their lives. Lord Newtsford. For the victims of shell shock, many felt the cure had to be more terrifying than the cause. Dr. Lewis Yeland, who returned from Canada in 1914 to work for the Queen's Square Mental Hospital, believed that subjecting his patients to high-voltage electricity could serve as both cure and preventative. No matter how vigorously applied, the sting of a whip is nothing compared with the sudden severe shock of a ferritic current, Dr. Lewis Yaland. What treatments such as shock therapy demonstrated all too clearly was the conflict between medical ethics and military necessity. By 1916, the British Army had banned the use of the term shell shock, feeling it validated a condition of disability. But for many soldiers, an escape into this inner landscape of the mind was the only exit available. I saw two men shot the other day for cowardice. It is very bad for a coward to come here. If the Germans don't shoot him, they hold a court-martial and then shoot him themselves. Francis Xavier Maheu, 21st Battalion. I am of the opinion that it is necessary to make an example to prevent cowardice in the face of the enemy as far as possible. General Sir Douglas Hay. During the four years of war, the British Army executed 346 of its men. The Canadians took their cue from the British, executing 25 men, 22 of these for desertion. The Australians, by choice, did not execute a single soldier. That shuffling figure is one of us. He has fought with us, slept with us, eaten with us. He comes from Canada, where most of our homes are. George Bell, 3rd Battalion. The feeling was that we were all volunteers, and that no volunteer deserved the death sentence if he was unable to face the enemy in battle. D.E. Pearson. Donald McLean said you were suffering from shell shock, but that it was not a bad case. So many people have told me that it takes a long time to recover, and I am so afraid if you went back to the noise and turmoil, it would come back. Margaret Black. The families of victims of shell shock had to try as best they could to help their loved ones undergoing an experience thousands of miles away, which, for shame, had no official or clinical name. Major Norman Black, who had seen action at Vimy, informed his wife Margaret on July 29, 1917, that he was now in hospital. Dear Margaret, 
The days are very monotonous, but I'm now feeling much like myself again. Last night I had a good sleep, without dope, and didn't dream of shells and general catastrophes. So I'm getting all right and will be fit as a fiddle in a few days. I expect we will be moved from here shortly, probably down to the sea or, as some hope, over to Blighty. Major Norman Black. Still here, not exactly cured, and except for very sparingly, still in my right mind. I'm up today for an hour, a piece of foolishness to my mind, keeping a man in bed for so long. It's great to be up again, but it will take a day or two for it to feel perfectly natural. Except that I am a little shaky, I'm feeling as well as I ever did. Major Norman Black. I was not surprised when I got your letter saying you had been sent to the hospital. I sort of felt from reading between the lines in your last few letters that you were under a terrible strain and that your physical strength would give out. The feeling I have today is one of intense relief and thankfulness that you were at least removed from the sounds of war. And surely now you have done your bit at the front line and you can be content, removed from the main show. Margaret Black This place is officered by nerve specialist doctors, and many and incongruous are the methods they have of testing that part of one's anatomy. Some are sent back to their units, for it is a thing in which there can be considerable bluffing by a certain type of man. Major Norman Black. You needn't have the slightest fear of anyone here thinking you are a quitter. No one could have done more than you. And Norman, dear, I think you were too sensitive about that. You are my hero more than ever, and I am prouder of you than words can express. And nothing would give me greater delight than to know that you would never go back to the front. Margaret Black. Why you should feel disgusted at being out of the show because of illness I can't see. Would you rather have been wounded and lost a few arms and legs? I don't see why they won't let you come home to get well, away from these air raids and things. I simply can't write all I feel tonight. I just want to put my arms around your neck and have your head on my shoulder. Lovingly, Margaret. Those nearly dead were put to bed and given morphia if necessary and left to die. A few of these recovered. Many of the men had been lying in no man's land for 12 hours or more. Most of them had little or nothing to eat for 48 hours. Major Dr. G.S. Strathy. For every four soldiers in the trenches, one would be killed, one would emerge unscathed, and two would be wounded. A blighty was a soldier's dream, a wound serious enough to require a period of convalescence in England. Not a few were self-inflicted. Any wound, even the desired blighty, ran the risk of a bacterial infection commonly known as gas gangrene, a result of the particularly septic conditions of the soil. It was the cause of most amputations. Dear Grace, I'm in the line again. This is my third trip in, and Fritz hasn't got me yet, but you can never tell. He has hit me, though. 
It was last night, and I was standing, talking to one of our corporals, when suddenly I felt something hit me on the leg like a small stone. I crawled around to see if I could find what hit me, and suddenly felt something hot. Found it was a German bullet, a spent bullet. If it had hit me before it struck the ground, I probably would have a blighty, but no such luck. Your cousin Willand Williams. Shortly after, Wellen Williams was killed, making him one of the 214,000 Canadian casualties of the First World War. Of the nearly 60,000 fatalities, 39,000 of them were killed outright in action. Another 15,000 died as a result of wounds or accidents. 154,000 survived their wounds and another 6,000 died from disease. To combat venereal disease, which was debilitating and on occasion fatal, 24-hour prophylactic centers were made available. In battle areas, sex, safe or not, was confined to the French Maison Tolérée. Each Sunday afternoon, a long queue is formed in front of a certain house in Heston. One by one, these soldiers are admitted, inflamed by the jibes and jests shouted out by the men behind them in the line. Each one is given 10 minutes for the whole business. Private Thomas Deanism. With the war, the sex trade in Paris flourished as never before. And with a shrewdness born of long familiarity with the fantasies of lonely men, a quantity of Canadian nurses' sisters' uniforms disappeared from stock only to reappear on prostitutes trolling for Canadians on Paris boulevards. At the battlefront, the soldiers accepted death as a fact of war, as part of the game. But at home, we closed our minds to such a possibility. In spite of the long casualty lists that appeared day after day, we believed our loved ones led charmed lives. Grace Morris. March 15th. Dear Grace, I hope Mother has not got nervous over me at all. And you might convince her that there's no more need to worry than when I was in the tunnelers. The only difference being that instead of running the risk of going up, I run the risk of going down. Love, Basil. It was noon on March 17th that the plane with Basil and his pilot was shot down over Belgium. The dreaded telegram beginning, regret to inform, reached our home on the 19th of March. The tragic news reached Ramsey in the trenches where he was serving with his battalion, the 38th. Grace Morris. It's much easier for anyone here, Father, as you would understand if you were here, to take what comes to them. You look forward to certain things as inevitable. Please give my love and sympathy to Mother. Do what you can for her. Also give my love and sympathy to Grace. I have avoided being by myself as much as possible as I couldn't stand it. Your loving son, Ramsey. The same night, another patient died, and another still was very low. 
while there were at least four other delirious headcases who seemed to take turns pulling off their dressings or getting out of bed. Elizabeth Painter, Nursing Sister. As members of the Canadian Army Medical Corps discovered, saving lives did not guarantee immunity. On June 27, 1918, the Canadian hospital ship, the Landoveri Castle, was torpedoed and sunk, taking with it 234 crew members, medical staff, and nursing sisters. The ship sank in 10 minutes, but the German submarine spent a further two hours shelling and ramming lifeboats in an attempt to destroy evidence of its breach of the Geneva Convention. 14 Canadian nursing sisters were killed when their lifeboat capsized in the suction from the sinking ship. One is proud to remember that the sisters on hospital ships remained at their posts till all patients had been transferred. And only then, the traditional order, women first, apply. Mabel Clint, nursing sister. Forty-six Canadian nursing sisters would die serving their country. We stand at the decisive moment of the war and at one of the greatest moments in German history. May this feeling be deeply engraved on all our hearts. Kaiser Wilhelm. Having made peace with the Bolshevik Russia, Germany now concentrated its forces in the West and launched the offensive that they hoped would end the war before American manpower could become decisive. The chain which was to strangle us has been burst. We can turn our entire strength towards the West. General Paul von Hindenburg. By mid-February, the Germans had 178 divisions on the Western Front, outnumbering those of the Allies. We can now think of attack. We are entirely confident that the battle, which is bursting forth, will be successful for us. General Erich von Ludendorff. Ludendorff's tactics called for storm troops to push their way through the Allied lines, with backup troops then widening the breach and pushing deep into open country, leaving pockets of resistance to regimental and battalion reserves. We chop a hole. The rest follows. General Erich von Ludendorff. At 6.40 a.m. on March 21st, 2,500 guns firing combinations of gas and explosive shells opened up on a 50-mile front opposite the British 5th Army. The British were overpowered by the force of the German assault. 19 of the 21 British divisions engaged had been at Passchendaele, and were filled with raw recruits. 
the German 18th Army pushed the British back beyond the Somme and occupied Peyron. The losses of the brave English who strongly defended themselves were very heavy in killed, wounded, and prisoners. While the German losses are surprisingly small, the spirit of the troops is sustained by joyful confidence of victory. Berliner Tageblatt. The Germans had attacked the French south of Arras with even greater success, and once more threatened Paris. Our object is not to win ground or towns. Our battle aim is solely the destruction of enemy forces and his means for the continuance of the war. Vossische Zeitung. But the initial progress of the German army was slowed by long supply lines to the front and stiffening Allied resistance. One cannot go on victoriously forever without ammunition or any sort of reinforcements. Rudolf Binding. The Germans had struck the British on the Canadians' left and the French on their right. Anticipating that they would be next, Curry issued a proclamation to his troops, which reflected at once his pride, his fears, and his confidence, with such uncharacteristic eloquence that English courses in France in the 1920s required their students to memorize it. Today, the fate of the British Empire hangs in the balance. I place my trust in the Canadian Corps, knowing that where Canadians are engaged, there can be no giving way. You will advance or fall where you stand, facing the enemy. To those who will fall, I say, you will not die, but step into immortality. Your mothers will not lament your fate, but will be proud to have borne such sons. Your names will be revered forever and ever by your grateful country, and God will take you unto himself. I trust you to fight as you have ever fought, with all your strength, with all your determination, with all your tranquil courage. On many a hard-fought field of battle, you have overcome the enemy. With God's help, you shall achieve victory once more. Arthur Curry. But the attack never came. Haig, desperate, began to call on the Canadian Corps, or part of it, to help save the deteriorating situation. Curry resisted, appealing to General Horn in a letter. I know that necessity knows no law, and that the chief will do what he thinks best. Yet for the sake of the victory we must win, get the Canadians back together as soon as possible. Arthur Curry. He wishes to fight only as a Canadian Corps and got his Canadian representative in London to write and urge me to arrange it. As a result, the Canadians are together holding a wide front near Arras, but they have not yet been in the battle. General Sir Douglas Haig. What Haig, in his criticism, failed to take into account was that it was not the Canadians who avoided the Germans, but the Germans who chose to bypass the Canadians. I'm sure the reason for the enemy not directing a blow at us was that they had never yet met the Canadians in battle without suffering defeat, and so, 
passed by on either side. Arthur Curry. Tactically, the German offensive had been a success, having penetrated 40 miles, captured 80,000 prisoners, and 975 guns. But in failing to reach Paris or to drive a wedge between the British and French forces, it had failed to achieve its strategic purpose. Later, in private, Haig confessed to Curry, In all the dark days of spring, one great comforting thought came to me, that I still had the Canadian Corps, unused and fresh, and I felt I could not be defeated until the Corps had been in action. General Sir Douglas Haig. Now the technique of the stormtroop came into play. The new German tactics designed for their stormtroops resembled so closely those first developed by the Canadians at Vimy that there was no doubt as to the paternity of the technique. German stormtroops had been responsible for the swiftness of the German breakthrough. As a consequence, when the massive attack subsided and they found themselves defending their gains, well in front of their long-maintained defensive lines, they kept a wary eye out for the Canadians. Regarding the Canadians as stormtroops, the enemy greeted their appearance as an omen of a coming attack. Sir Basil Liddell Hart, military historian. In order to mislead the Germans as to the whereabouts of the Canadian Corps, two battalions, two casualty dressing stations, and a wireless section was dispatched north to Flanders. The 20th Battalion put on one of the finest acts that could be put on. They took a piece of the German trench, but when they retreated, the old officer forgot his tunic and somebody else's haversack with official operational orders. After August 8th, they found copies of these false orders right at the German headquarters. Joe O'Neill, 19th Battalion. The Germans put two and two together and thought, the Canadians are coming back to the Belgian front. D.D. Spencer, Royal Canadian Regiment. The main body of the Corps, however, had moved south to Amiens where misinformation was spread regarding their presence. The French didn't know we were coming in. We removed all our badges and we looked more like newspaper correspondents. The French had no idea who we were, not even the officers. Dan Ormond, 10th Battalion. Everything I had feared, of which I had often given warning, had here, in one place, become a reality. General Erich von Ludendorff. Curry and his staff, to give the Canadian troops added incentive, had them signal their arrival at their jump-off positions with the code word Landoveri Castle, 
the name of the torpedoed hospital ship on which Canadian nursing sisters had died. There would be no preliminary bombardment, only a creeping barrage keeping pace with the infantry led by 324 Mark V heavy tanks and 96 medium Mark A whippets. At 4.20 a.m., August 8th, the barrage signaled the beginning of the battle. You could have read a newspaper in the reflection from the gunfire. Private William Curtis, 10th Battalion. As we passed the rows of guns smoking from their incessant firing, the gunners stopped long enough to look up and give us a good word. Phrases such as, go to it, we're with you, give them hell, made a curious lump in my throat. Private William Walwyn, 102nd Infantry Battalion. There was a heavy ground mist and a considerable amount of low-lying smoke, which made it difficult to keep direction and touch. Lieutenant Colonel McDonald, 10th Battalion. We crossed no man's land. Just a plowed field with pieces of wire and equipment sticking out of it. Didn't even know we were crossing trenches. Private car, 10th Battalion. The 10th Battalion reached the blue line at 1.15 p.m., the first Canadian unit to reach the objective, with little help from the tanks, which had virtually disappeared. We could see the Germans, a disorganized mob going over the hills, running away. Private car, 10th Battalion. We went ahead that day and took the whole of our front. We were there ahead of time, so we could have gone on, but it was a matter of having to leapfrog the artillery. It wasn't the opposition of the Bosch that stopped us at all. It was the pressure of our own artillery. Dan Ormond, 10th Battalion. In a single day, the German line was thrown back eight miles by the Canadian Corps and seven miles by the Aussies. The 4th Army's casualties totaled 9,000, 4,000 of them Canadians, compared to the German losses of 27,000 men and 400 guns. The Canadians alone captured 5,000 prisoners. A German officer told me it was impossible we could be Canadians. We have most certain information from our intelligence department that the Canadians are in Belgium, he said. Reverend Robert John Rendison. You know, when you'd been to Ypres and you'd been around the Somme, when you got 200 yards or 100 yards, you thought you'd made a wonderful advance. But here we've got miles. It was unbelievable. Private Samuel Hemphill, 10th Battalion. Senior staff officers hurried up from GHQ to see me and ask what I thought should be done. They indicated quite plainly that the success had gone far beyond expectations. I replied in the Canadian vernacular, the going seems good, let's go. Arthur Curry. The Canadians buried their dead in the areas in which they fell. In two days, they had pushed the Germans back 15 miles. 16 German divisions have been identified, of which four have been completely routed. Nearly 150 guns have been captured, while over 1,000 machine guns have fallen into our hands. 10,000 prisoners have passed through our cages and casualty clearing stations. 25 towns and villages have been rescued from the clutch of the invaders. 
the Paris-Amiens railway has been freed from interference and the danger of dividing the French and British armies has been dissipated. Arthur Curry. In the wake of the battle, which General Ludendorff would describe as the Black Day of the German Army, he interviewed his divisional commanders on the psychological state of the German soldier. I was told of deeds of glorious valor, but also of behavior which I openly confess I should not have thought possible in the German army. Whole bodies of our men had surrendered to single troopers or isolated squadrons. Our war machine was no longer efficient. General Erich von Ludendorff. The Kaiser, after meeting with Ludendorff on August 14th, instructed his foreign minister to initiate peace negotiations. I never saw so many Germans dead as there was around that place. Thousands of them. Lieutenant Joseph Sprosten. Having moved south to spearhead the Amiens offensive for the British Fourth Army, the Canadians, in less than a week, would be moved back north to lead the even more vital offensive by Sir Henry Horne's First Army through the Drocourt-Quiant line. The victory at Amiens, unprecedented as it had been, was against Germans occupying recently captured ground. That offensive, now that it had reached the established German defenses of the Hindenburg line, had ground to a halt. The Drocourt-Quiant switch, which was the most concentrated defensive position on the whole front, connected the 1914 defense line to the Hindenburg line. If the Canadians' attack succeeded, the Hindenburg Line would be outflanked. Marshal Foch expressed his faith in the Canadians. That's going to be a long task, a hard one. But the Canadians know that ground so perfectly, and they are so determined that I think I can trust them to succeed. Marshal Foch. Marshal Foch's prediction that the Canadian task would be a long one was based on his own plans. He proposed to recover the ground lost to the Germans that spring, weaken the German defenses during the winter months, and then launch a decisive assault designed to win the war in 1919. General Horn had given Curry just two days to prepare his attack. Curry demanded, and got, three. It was represented that this barely gave 48 hours to concentrate the necessary artillery, and that furthermore, the Canadian Corps had sentimental objections to attacking on the Sabbath day. Arthur Curry. I paid a visit to our battle headquarters, and the general asked me to have a celebration of the Holy Communion there the next morning at eight. I knew that the attack was almost due, so I prepared for it and took my iron rations with me. We had the communion service in a tent at the general's headquarters. There were only three present, but the general was one of them. 
Canon Frederick Scott. The Germans considered their position impregnable. The Canadians would have to fight their way through old British and German trenches, past Amanchy le Preux, where the Newfoundland Battalion had been destroyed a second time in 1917, and a further two miles to the Rouvroy line, three miles from their final objective. In all, they would pass through five German defense lines before they reached the Drocourt Quint line, a line of fortifications a kilometer and a half in depth, protected by three lines of barbed wire each 60 meters wide. Curry began his attack at 3 a.m., catching the Germans asleep. By 7.40 a.m., the 8th Infantry Brigade had successfully outflanked Orange Hill and captured Monchy. The 2nd Division had taken Chapel Hill but ran into stiff opposition at the villages of Wancourt and Guémat. By the second day of fighting, Curry's hopes of reaching Rouvroy had gone unrealized. The 22nd Battalion, the Vandus, had taken heavy casualties. On the third day, they were led into battle by a major, Georges Vanier, a future Governor General of Canada. I called a meeting in a large shell hole for the few officers who were left. I told them about the new attack and in the circumstances, there was only one thing to do. When the barrage fell, the officers were to rise and call on the men to follow. And that is what happened. Major Georges Vanier, 22nd Battalion. They did not get far. The Vandus lost every officer, including Vanier, hit by a bullet in his side. I should have been very fortunate to come off with it only, but this was to be one of my bad days. As I was being dressed by the stretcher bearer, a shell exploded at my side, causing rather unpleasant shrapnel wounds to my legs. Major Georges Vanier, 22nd Battalion. His unpleasant wounds were so severe that Vanier's leg had to be amputated. In three days of fighting, the Corps had suffered 5,801 casualties, with the 22nd Battalion being the hardest hit with 501 casualties, including every officer. The exhausted 2nd and 3rd Divisions were now relieved by the 1st and 4th for the assault on the Drocourt-Quint line. Curry had developed a tactic of pushing forward as far as he could, getting the Germans to commit their reserves, then switching the attack to another location. The new attack began on September 2nd. On the right, the 3rd Brigade of the 1st Division hit hard. It included the 16th Canadian Scottish Battalion under Lieutenant Colonel Cy Peck, who would win a VC this day, leading the way for his men. Prisoners surrendered in shoals. They outnumbered us vastly, but they were in a demoralized condition. Lieutenant Colonel Sipak, 16th Canadian Scottish Battalion. The division attained its objective two miles beyond the Drocourt Quint line by 11 p.m. At the end of the day, the Canadians had overrun a frontage of 7,000 yards and destroyed the hinge of the whole German defensive position on the Western Front. During the night, the Germans withdrew behind the Canal du Nord. 
It is truly impossible for me to find words to adequately express the truly wonderful fighting qualities our men have displayed. I cannot say any more. A lump comes in one's throat whenever you think about it. Arthur Curry. France, September 5th, 1918. To mother. Safe and sound again. Passed through some warm times, but I'm in fine shape and not a scratch. It just goes to show how little cause for worry you had. Best love, William. Private William Walwyn, 102nd Infantry Battalion. The Canadian victory prompted the German high command to make large-scale withdrawals all along the Western Front. Hindenburg, referring to the Canadian assault, wrote, On September the 2nd, a fresh hostile attack overran our lines once and for all on the great Arras-Cambrai road and compelled us to bring the whole front back to our main defense line. General Paul von Hindenburg. The effect of the victory was decisive for the Allies as well. It persuaded Foch and his high command to press for victory in 1918. Ludendorff, concluding that his best troops had just lost an impregnable position, felt the morale of his army had shattered. He told the Kaiser to make peace, that the war was lost. The news sent a distraught Kaiser Wilhelm to bed for 24 hours. Jetzt haben wir den Krieg verloren, armes Vaterland. Now we have lost the war, poor Fatherland, Kaiser Wilhelm. It is a question whether our victory of yesterday or August 8th is the greatest, but I am inclined to think yesterday's was. At Amiens, we went up against an enemy who was prepared for the offensive. Here, he was prepared for the defensive. Here we went up against his old system, that which there never was anything stronger anywhere. Arthur Curry. I hope for better results tomorrow. There's no particular reason for hope, except that if we keep on pounding, the Germans will be obliged to give way. General J.J. Pershing. General John Blackjack Pershing, commander of the American Expeditionary Force, closely resembled Sam Hughes, both in the largeness of his vision and in his refusal to kowtow to reality. We come as Americans. We shall remain Americans. We shall go into battle with old glory over our heads. I will not parcel out American boys. General J.J. Pershing. That attitude, applied by Sam Hughes in 1915, meant that the Canadians would learn at the same pace as everybody else. In this situation, however, the Americans were throwing away the advantage of learning from armies already instructed in the grim realities of the most terrible war the world had ever known. As a result of Pershing's intransigence, the Americans would suffer high casualties and remain relatively ineffective 
despite their huge numbers. On August 24, 1918, Douglas Haig wrote a letter to his wife. I saw Foch yesterday. He is arranging to have the Americans take some active share in the fighting. It seems quite wrong that they should merely be looking on. General Sir Douglas Haig. By September 1918, the Americans, who had been in France for a year and three months, had been involved in just one offensive action, and that of only a few days' duration. Following the Canadian breakthrough at Amiens and Drocourt, Clemenceau, the French Prime Minister, wrote Foch. I have postponed from day to day writing you about the crisis existing in the American army. You have watched at close range the result of American commander General Pershing's action. Unfortunately, thanks to his invincible obstinacy, he has won out against you as well as against your immediate subordinates. Our worthy American allies, who thirst to get into action, have been marking time since their forward jump on the first day. They are unusable simply because they are unused. Georges Clemenceau, Prime Minister of France. In July, Foch presented Pershing with his plans for the Allied offensive. Pershing tossed Foch's plans aside and began detailed preparation for a major offense of his own in the rest area of Saint-Michel. Both Clemenceau and Lloyd George, the British Prime Minister, were furious when they heard what Pershing was up to. Dennis Winter, historian. The American army in France now totaled a million and a half men, but it had no artillery of its own. Its air force flew mainly British and French aircraft, and any tanks were British-designed borrowed from the French. Our entry into the war found us with few of the auxiliaries necessary for its conduct. Among the most important deficiencies were artillery, aviation, and tanks. In order to meet our requirements, we accepted an offer from the French government to provide us with the necessary artillery equipment at 75s, 155 millimeter howitzers, and 155 GPF guns from their own factories for 30 divisions. The wisdom of this course is fully demonstrated by the fact that although we soon began the manufacture of these guns at home, there were no guns of the caliber mentioned manufactured in America on our front at the date the armistice was signed. In aviation, we were in the same situation. We obtained from the French the necessary planes for training our personnel, and they also supplied us with 2,676 pursuit, observation, and bombing planes. The first American squadron, completely equipped by American production, including airplanes, crossed the German lines on August 7, 1918. As to tanks, we were also compelled to rely on the French. Here, however, we were less fortunate for reasons that the French production could barely meet the requirements of their own armies. General J.J. Pershing. This dependence did not prevent Pershing who had belatedly agreed to Foch's plan, from ignoring advice from French Second Army headquarters, which was questioning his planned attack on Saint-Michel. We had undertaken to launch, within the next 24 days, two great attacks on battlefields 60 miles apart with virtually the same army, General J.J. Pershing. 
The twin battle which followed can be briefly described. After the first day at Saint-Michel, the American supply lines jammed. The American advance came to an abrupt halt. The Germans had been given ample warning and the Americans counted only 200 enemy dead. They had simply punched empty air at great cost. Things went little better in the Argonne. On the first day, the Americans advanced six miles, but over the next 21 days, they managed just three miles. And once again, transport broke down. Dennis Winter, historian. Transport had broken down to such an extent that Charles Grant, an observer from British Army headquarters, reported 400 American troops dying of starvation and wounded men dying because they could not get back to the casualty clearing stations. Ludendorff, in his own way, managed to confirm American ineffectiveness without diminishing their importance. The fact that new American reinforcements could release British and French divisions on quiet sectors weighed heavily in the balance against us. General Erich von Ludendorff. The American Army's results, compared to those of the Canadians during the last 100 days, are instructive. The 650,000 Americans engaged conducted operations for 47 days. The 105,000 Canadians for 100 days. The Americans advanced 34 miles. The Canadians, 86. The Americans met 46 German divisions. The Canadians, 47. Casualties per division faced were 2,170 for the Americans, 975 for the Canadians. The Americans captured 16,000 prisoners. The Canadians, 31,537. The Americans captured 468 guns. The Canadians, 623. American casualties were 100,000. The Canadians, 45,830. The Canadian retort to the claim that American entry into the war had brought victory to the Allies was that their famous Rainbow Division was well-named, having arrived after the storm. War is a simple art, but is based on knowledge. Democracy must choose either the soldier of its own flesh and blood, whom it can inspire and control, or the unrestrained military spirit, which may grow within or come from without, as an invader. Dr. Andrew McPhail, medical officer, 2nd Division. The Canadian Corps was the only force in France that went through the last hundred days of the war with unimpaired striking power, replacing commanders and officers, absorbing reinforcements, which kept it nearly at full strength, which enabled its four divisions to meet and route 47 German divisions between August and November. Lieutenant Colonel Wilfred O. Bovey. In 1918, after Vimy, Passchendaele, Hill 70, and Lenz, everyone in the Allied High Command accepted Curry as a master innovator of battle tactics against an entrenched enemy. 
But in the summer of 1918, the nature of the war had changed to a war of movement. The plan, which required the Canadians to filter south some 25 miles to spearhead the attack at Amiens as part of the British Fourth Army, and then move north again to do the same thing for the British First Army, all in a matter of days, was conceived by Foch and Haig, but its execution was left to Curry. We were really an army, four big, strong divisions, so Curry could push hard and push the enemy back, and when the German line stiffened, then he would shift a division to another front and hit again, and then move it again and hit again. The Germans could never quite get their feet on the ground. They never knew where we were going to hit them next, and in consequence, could never concentrate at the right place at the right time. Major General F.F. Worthington. This war of maneuver was executed with complete mastery by a general who had neither trained for it nor experienced it. Curry had never attempted to inspire love or devotion in his men. Nevertheless, he had managed to instill in the Canadian Corps what no other army in Europe in 1918 could justifiably claim, a winning attitude. When a soldier thinks his army is better than anybody else's, and his division is better than the other divisions, and his platoon's the best of the battalion, well, obviously, he is one of the best soldiers in the world, and that's it. Everybody believed that the Canadian Corps single-handed had flogged the hide off the German army and was winning the war. You could see it. That's the way we felt. W.H.S. Macklin, 19th Battalion. Probably never in the war had we experienced a moment of deeper anxiety. Canon Frederick Scott. Haig had promised Curry that the Canadian Corps would be given a much-needed rest. Between August 8th and the first week of October, the Corps had suffered 30,000 casualties. The chief of the general staff came to me and intimated that the commander-in-chief was particularly well-pleased with the conduct of the Canadians, that he hoped it would not be necessary to employ us in any further big operations during the year. Arthur Curry. But now the plan was to try to end the war in 1918, and Haig realized that he would need the Canadians. Curry was given new orders, to cross the Canal du Nord and take Bourlon Wood as part of a British move against Cambrai, which would mean the destruction of the Hindenburg Line. The average width of the canal was about 100 feet, and it was flooded as far south as the lock. 800 yards southwest of Saint-les-Marquins, just north of the core southern boundary. South of this and to the right of the core front, the canal was dry, and its bottom was at the natural ground level, the sides of the canal consisting of high earth and brick banks. Arthur Curry. Curry's plan called for the Canadians to shift the front south to this dry part of the canal, establish a narrow bridgehead, and then once across the canal to hook right and left behind the German defenses. 
The assembly of our attacking troops in an extremely congested area known by the enemy to be the only one available was very dangerous. A concentrated bombardment of this area, particularly if gas was employed, was a dreaded possibility. Arthur Curry. Despite its obvious dangers, Curry's divisional commanders embraced the strategy. The very boldness of the plan intrigued me, and I was all for it. General MacDonald, 1st Division. The 1st Army's commander, General Horn, however, was appalled at the risk involved. It is an axiom that a military operation should be as simple as possible, and the larger the operation, the greater the need for simplicity. No one can claim that the operation under consideration was simple. General Sir Henry Horn. When he failed to convince Curry to alter his strategy, Horn took his case to both Haig and Julian Bing, who stood by Curry. Bing did, however, visit Curry and confide to him that if his plan failed, he would undoubtedly be relieved of command and sent home. The men would have to climb down one side of the canal, rush across it, and climb up the other. Here, in mud and rain, weary and drenched to the skin, young Canadians were waiting to go through the valley of the shadow of death. Canon Frederick Scott. The banks of the unfinished part of the canal were something like 20 feet high. We were supposed to have scaling ladders brought up to us the night before. You can imagine my feelings when they didn't arrive. C.B. Price, 14th Battalion. The barrage began at 5.20 a.m., September 27th. As soon as the barrage lifted, we hopped into the canal. Fred Bales. The work of our engineers in bridging the canal immediately after the infantry had crossed was of such a character as to win the special praise of the Commander-in-Chief. Those bridges were begun not only under shell fire but under machine gun fire, and yet nothing could deter the work of our men. Arthur Curry. During that first night, the Germans began moving in fresh divisions, six new divisions by October 1st. What followed were days of bitter fighting in which the Canadians suffered heavy casualties. On October 9th, the attack on Cambrai began in the middle of the night. The Canadians met little, if any, resistance, and by the 11th had secured the entire district to the north as far as the Sensei Canal. In 47 days, the Corps had advanced 23 miles against parts of 31 German divisions, had captured 18,585 prisoners, 371 artillery guns, 2,000 machine guns, and liberated 54 towns and villages, including the important center of Cambrai. When the 5th Canadian Mounted Rifles were given the honor of entering Cambrai, a newspaper correspondent congratulated an officer on the work of his battalion. 
Don't say that. It isn't the 5th Canadian Mounted Rifles. It isn't even the 8th Brigade or the 3rd Canadian Division. It's a good old corps that's captured Cambrai. Mons was captured by the Canadian Corps on the 11th of November, 1918. After 50 months of German occupation, freedom was restored to the city. Here was fired the last shot of the Great War. Memorial plaque at Mons. The Belgian city of Mons was the site of Britain's first defeat by the Germans in 1914, which had prompted the Kaiser to refer to the British army as contemptible. The British replied by referring to themselves throughout the war as the Old Contemptibles. Thus, for Curry and the Canadians, proud to be considered British, the city had symbolic value. Despite a series of defeats and offers of peace, neither the Allied High Command nor the soldiers they led thought the German army had been defeated. From a military standpoint, the enemy has not been sufficiently broken as to cause him to accept an ignominious peace. General Sir Douglas Haig. As for Curry, he typically refused to speculate, but he knew what he wanted. The peace, when it comes, must last for many, many years. We do not want to have to do this thing all over again in another 15 or 20 years. If that is to be the case, German military power must be irretrievably crushed. This is the end we must obtain if we have the will and the guts to see it through. Arthur Curry. General Haig, wanting to finish the war in 1918, ordered an attack by the Canadian Army to capture the French city of Valciennes. If their armies are allowed to withdraw to shorter lines, the struggle may be postponed over the winter. However, we are now in a position to prevent this by a direct attack, which should anticipate the enemy's withdrawal and force an immediate conclusion. General Sir Douglas Haig. The Canadians captured Valciennes, and on November 5th, the citizens of the city planned a special ceremony to thank the Canadians. General Horn, commander of the British First Army, intervened, insisting that he should be the person to receive the address and the flag. Curry objected, pointing out that the Canadians had taken the city and that the British attack on nearby Monhui had failed. Horn's response was to change the order of the parade, placing the Canadians last. The ceremony on November 7th, Curry reported, was a very frosty affair. No Canadian senior officers other than Curry participated. It was not my intention to have been there had I not received a direct order. Arthur Curry. The 75th Mississauga and the 87th Canadian Grenadier Guards then crossed the River Orel, marking the French-Belgian border. 
The next day, the 302nd Central Ontario Battalion passed through and captured the village of Mardipur. The road to Mons lay open. For miles, the road was simply black with people. Whistles were blowing and dogs yelping. A forest of youngsters ran around the road. It was like a fair. Frank Luthes, Royal Canadian Artillery. Curry himself sensed the end was near. Private John Dokes of the 52nd Ontario Battalion met him on the road to Mons. He asked me how long I'd been in France. And I asked him about the armistice rumors. He told me, in his opinion, 24 hours would see the end of the fighting. I think I can safely tell you that you have followed your last barrage, he told me. After he left, some bandsmen across the road rushed over and asked me what he had said. I told them. After that, they referred to the general as Doke's pal, Private James Doke's. We entered the outskirts of Mons on the 9th of November, and that's where we met our first severe resistance in four or five days. The Germans were in every house, making it very hot for us. Victor Giancelli, Princess Patricia's. We flopped in among the cabbages. First, one of the men near me was hit rather badly in the shoulder. And then our officer muttered something and lay still. We were there for the remainder of the day. Lieutenant John Gates. During the early morning hours of November 11th, the Canadians advanced to the city centre. Curry had by then been officially informed that the armistice would be signed to take effect by 11 that day. As we went through the streets of the city, my men ran their bayonet rifles along the gates of the cellar windows. As a result, the citizens of Mons streamed out shouting, Les Americains! We explained we were Canadians. Paul Hutchinson, Royal Canadian Regiment. At 10.58 a.m., Private George Lawrence Price of the 28th Battalion led a patrol across the Canal du Centre and was killed instantly from a sniper's bullet that struck him in the chest. George Price was the last Canadian killed in the Great War and perhaps the last casualty on the Western Front. He lies buried in St. Sinfran Cemetery. Nearby is the body of Private J. Parr, who died on the 21st of August, 1914, the first British soldier to die in the Great War. When we heard it was over, nobody said a word for quite a while. Then a few cheered a bit feebly. I think most of us were kind of in shock or something. Joseph Hefferman, 50th Battalion, Calgary. We just couldn't believe it. And we went about our daily chores as if nothing momentous had happened. It was quite some time before the news filtered through our benumbed minds that the war was over and that we'd survived. Private William Ogilvy, 21st Canadian Field Artillery. Our boys weren't looking for an armistice. In fact, it's a poor time to stop the war, when we were having it all our own way. Buddy Falls. What bloody fools. We had them on the run. Now we shall have to do it all over again in 25 years. General A.G.L. McNaughton. Other soldiers were crowding into the city. Riotous, loquacious, wine-metalled fellows. Nothing ahead but home now, Jock, 
One shouted at me, and I wanted to hit him. An inexplicable bitterness had seized me. Will Bird. General Loomis, commander of the 3rd Division, decided to make up for the slight against the Canadians four days earlier at Valciennes. He decided to stage a parade specifically to honor Curry, who at first resisted the planned display. An honor guard of 1,500 strong assembled at the Grand Palace. Curry rode into Mons with an escort of the British 5th Lancers, who had fought at the first battle at Mons four years before. A Canadian infantryman, witnessing the approach of the glittering cavalry and staff officers, remarked, Jesus, we got into the wrong part of the army. Fred Lone. Curry became reconciled to the pomp and circumstance, confiding to his diary, After doing three cheers for the Belgian king and queen and the people, our troops marched to the tune of the Belgian national anthem, and the thousands of the square sang it, and it was most inspiring. Arthur Curry. The next day, led through the streets by Canadian pipers, the bodies of 11 Canadian soldiers were buried in rich oak coffins. To have gone through what anyone who has been here for three years has had to go through would almost justify one in hoping that your own countrymen would not refer to you as a murderer. Arthur Curry. Ten years later, General Curry would win a libel suit he had to initiate in response to an accusation that he squandered Canadian lives in capturing Mons in a war already won. The jury would award him only $500 in damages. As had many a commander before him, Curry discovered that the virtues of war are little honored or even remembered in peacetime. Arriving in London on the 17th, Prime Minister Robert Borden met with Lloyd George during the day and Arthur Curry that same night. Arthur Curry gave us a most interesting account of the achievements of the Canadian forces during the preceding few months. During that period, they had a magnificent record, unsurpassed in any previous period of the war. Robert Borden. But despite his outstanding record of achievement in the field, Curry would always be faced with the ghosts of Mons. In the House of Commons, Sam Hughes declared, were I in authority, the officer who four hours before the armistice was signed, although he had been notified beforehand that the armistice was to begin at 11 o'clock, ordered the attack on Mons, thus needlessly sacrificing the lives of the Canadian soldiers, would be tried summarily by court-martial. Sam Hughes. The man is a liar, is at times insane, and apparently is a cur of the worst type. Had that man had his way, the Corps would still be armed with the Ross rifle, which caused more unnecessary casualties by far than any other factor I know of. If my record in this war can be tarnished by such as he, then I don't much care. Arthur Curry. But Curry did care, knowing that scandalous allegations made public, regardless of the veracity of the claims, 
would forever taint his reputation. However much one would dislike his slinging of mud, I cannot see how I can stop him. Arthur Curry. Curry was knighted and acclaimed as a hero in England, France, and Belgium. He attended the peace conference in February 1919 with Lady Curry at his side. He was feted by royalty and presidents. On the day of his departure from England, he lunched privately with the king and queen. Upon his arrival in Halifax on the 17th of August, 1919, he was met not by cheering crowds and military bands, not by grateful representatives of government, but by a lone district commanding officer who led the Curries to the city hall for an almost silent civic reception. In Ottawa, he was given a subdued welcome by a government unwilling to be seen honoring a man who had brought them victory, but at too great a cost for their political sensibilities. Sam Hughes had done his work well. Some people want to forget that there ever was such a thing as the Canadian Corps. Arthur Curry. It is a terrible restlessness which possesses us like an evil spirit, the indefinite expression of a vague discontent, the restlessness of dying men, little children, and old soldiers. George Pearson. Early that morning in Pembroke, a cold, bleak morning, a whistle blew. It was a train whistle at the CPR station. It blew loud and long, and people stirred in their sleep. Loud whistles at the two lumber mills joined in, and then the brazen clang at the fire bell on top of the town hall. As the bells of all the churches and the sirens at the factories were added to the din, lights appeared everywhere, and people poured into the streets. The riders from Mr. William's stable, myself among them, rode in an endless procession up and down Main Street. The partying and parading ended only when evening came, and fatigue took over. Grace Morris. For Grace Morris, who had already lost a beloved brother, a cousin, and a boyfriend overseas, the war had yet to deliver its cruelest blow. Shortly after his return to Canada, her fiancé, Major Stuart Thorne of the 5th Battalion Engineers, collapsed suddenly and died of endocarditis, an infection in the lining of his heart, the result of trench fever he developed at the front in 1916. The doctor said he has been killed in action just as if a German bullet had pierced his heart. Grace Morris. Dear Norman, I know that you have been very much worse than you have ever let me know, and Mrs. Oakway says in her letters that you are slowly recovering. I know you'll never get well over there. I think you've done your bit. Now, my darling, here is a good hug and kiss. May God keep you safe and send you home to us soon. Your loving Margaret. Margaret Black.
For years, the Canadian Corps had been living in a land of desolation and for the last two months had been fighting its way through the scarred belt of France. At one spot, a Canadian signpost reads, this was Rheincourt. One could almost imagine the possibility of the end of all civilization and picture a race of new barbarians living in the dugouts of dead armies, beginning again the weary story of the ascent of man. But now, the Allied armies had arrived at the boundary of the abomination and desolation. Beyond lay cornfields plowed for next year's crops, which Germans will not reap. Indeed, in the distance, the red tile roofs seemed to speak of a new experience. Cambrai was the gate, not only of a new country, but of a new era. The greatest discovery of my life has been the deep springing well of idealism in our young men. They do all they can to hide it, but in times of drought, it never runs dry. It is passing strange that it is youth, which has all to live for, that gives it royally away. Reverend Robert John Renison. At approximately the same time as Curry's libel trial, Tom Dennison, who'd won the Victoria Cross during the last hundred days, would ruminate on war and its meaning for men. When I was sent to the front, I did not expect to come back. I shook off the fear of death by looking death straight in the face. Having done that, you are set free. Immediately, you have gained the perfect freedom. I do not think a man can meet with a more wonderful experience. At last, you have broken the chain, the almost unbreakable instinct of self-preservation, which nature has used for subjugating you, for making you a willing slave. We were free to rise laughing above all trifling worries about life and the future. We had gained the great liberation. Everything around us felt so obvious and simple. It was not until it was over and the gates shut behind us that we understood it all. We had been in the enchanted wood. Now we return to civilization. Once more, the weary load of a future will fall upon our shoulders. Behind us lies our enchanted wood. The real world, the real life. Private Thomas Deanison. William Walwyn of the 102nd Battalion, who refused the opportunity to return to Canada to study medicine only a month before he saw his first action at Amiens, was a changed man in the eyes of his sister. William is no longer the gay, insouciant youth, a bit of a stranger. The man is handsome, but tired very tired after the evil tensions of war. When we saw him stretched out on the swing couch, drawn and white, we pled for an idle summer. Marion Walwyn. As his ship crossed the Atlantic, Will Byrd, one of the few surviving members of his original battalion, struggled to make sense of his conflicting emotions. I moved about, shook myself, sniffed the salt air, tried to rid myself of my dreams. As I stood, there came a sudden chill, 
We had left the warm current and were into the icy waters, nearer home. We had left behind the comradeship of long hours on trench post and patrols, the brotherhood of the line. We were entering a cold sea, facing the dark, the unknown we could not escape. Dark figures came and stood beside me. It was three o'clock in the morning. These men could not sleep. They had come to see the first lights of Halifax. I moved quietly among them, scanning each blurred face. It was as I thought. They were all old-timers, the men of the trenches. Perhaps when my bitterness had passed, when I had got back to normal self, to loved ones tried by hard years of waiting, I would find that despite that horror which I could never forget, I had an equalizing treasure in memories I could use, like Jacob's Ladder, to get high enough to see that even war itself could never be the whole of life. The watchers stirred. My throat tightened. Every man had tensed, craned forward, yet no one spoke. It was the moment for which we had lived, which we had dreamed, visioned, pictured a thousand times, far ahead, faint, but growing brighter. We had glimpsed the first lights of home. Wilbird. History Express. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. We hope you enjoy this episode of the History Express podcast. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Express podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please look in the show description notes for a link that will allow you to help support the podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and until next time, have a great day.